Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. As a lot of you probably heard, USA Gymnastics has filed for bankruptcy. This after two years of scandals involving Larry Nassar sexually abusing female gymnasts, cover-ups and resignations that led to the stripping of USAG's governing body status by the U.S. Olympic Committee. What does that mean? 200,000 folks from gymnasts to coaches to clubs to judges have no institution to turn to when it comes to sponsoring or administering events. But... Turns out filing for bankruptcy will allow USAA Gymnastics to maintain its position. It stops the process of decertification and puts on hold all litigation. Yeah, that's a big deal. 100 lawsuits, 350 plaintiffs, amounting to an estimated $150 million. And any further investigation into the complicity of USAG is stopped They are trying to evade justice, and we owe the survivors so much more than that. I don't know what's going to happen to USAG, but these talented young American female gymnasts are kicking ass. They just got first place at World Championships in Doha, Qatar, and Simone Biles tied Russian gymnast Svetlana Korkina for most medals won by a female gymnast and boasts the most gold medals of any female gymnast in history. Also, Biles spent the night before the qualifiers in Doha in a hospital for a kidney stone. That's pretty impressive. In this classic episode, we look back at the history of women in gymnastics. Hey, Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners, Kristen here. Before we get into today's episode on Olympic gymnastics, I wanted to acknowledge some major news that was actually breaking while Caroline and I were recording this episode. Um, there has been a report that was published in the Indianapolis Star newspaper, uh, which finds that 
USA Gymnastics, which is the Olympic gymnastic organization, has been systematically covering up allegations of sexual abuse by gymnastics coaches. And this is something because we weren't aware of how this was happening. Uh, we don't talk about in the podcast, but we just wanted to acknowledge that we realize that this has happened. And if this is something that you all would like us to come back and talk about in more depth, absolutely email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Uh, but we just wanted to say a couple words so that you all don't think that we are also turning a blind eye to this major problem that has not only implicated USA Gymnastics as a whole, uh, but also Bella Caroli, who has been uh, accused in the past of psychologically abusing gymnasts, and also his wife, Marta Caroli, um, who is the current team coordinator for USA Gymnastics. So some sad news to start off this episode, but important nonetheless for us to acknowledge. And with that, let's get on to the show. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking gymnastics. I'm I'm excited. I'm so excited. Um, so many little girls that I grew up with did gymnastics. I was not myself a joiner. I was a, a very shy, only child, and my parents were just like okay with me not participating. Yeah, I also I, I can't do a pull up, <laughs> so gymnastics was never something on my mind. At least uh, artistic gymnastics. Yeah, rhythmic gymnastics whole other ball field. I was all about the ribbon dancer. I, I would try to do the the ball like body juggle thing that they do, which really just looks like, <laughs> you know, like people at Bonnaroo <laughs> with this. Like, well, it also reminds me of a, of a video I just watched yesterday of an otter that was on a rock and it was throwing a rock between its paws. And I was like, this looks like that gymnastics thing. Why don't the Otter Olympics exist? Oh, we've got the puppy bowl. I know. So we need the Otter Olympics. Oh, well, yeah, because O and O oh, it works perfectly. Otter Olympics. NBC, I'm already hello. I'm already picturing the logo. It's so cute in my head. Call us television. We have ideas. <laughs> That's how that works, right? Yeah, it's just television the, just calls us. Television Inc. gives you a ring. But back to women's gymnastics. Oh, right. Not otters. Okay. Which we were talking about today. Uh, some f- listeners had requested it. But also, Caroline, I have, as many people do, a real soft spot for women's gymnastics in the yeah. Summer Olympics. It's like the reason. Well, no, there are a lot of really good Summer Olympics events. But gymnastics is such a crowd fave. It is. And I was just listening. Maybe some other listeners out there heard this, too. But I was listening to NPR yesterday and there was a a sports reporter who was talking about how swimming and track and field had always been the glamour pusses, the stars of the Olympics and how uh, starting with Nadia Comaneci, 
that all changed and gymnastics captured everyone's imaginations. And I mean, that totally rings true for me, too, because I grew up either watching ice skating with my mother or watching women's gymnastics with my mother. Like, I don't I literally, literally until this previous Summer Olympics in 2012, literally have no recollection of watching swimming. And I certainly didn't really care much about track and field. Ooh, I enjoy track and field. I mean, I watched it, but I don't. I, I literally don't remember watching swimming, but track and field, I was always like, eh, they're very fast. But, but gymnastics, there's so much like shows of incredible strength and grace and power. And I mean, we certainly will talk about that and talk about some of the women who have exhibited all of that strength and grace and power. But we're also going to address the issue of how people speak differently about certain types of gymnasts and the language they use. Yeah. Um, so you watch these summer and winter Olympic events with your mom. I am curious to know, though, Caroline, mm-hmm. did your dad watch any Olympics? Is he I'm, more of a curling man? <laughs> <laughs> Old Chad. Uh, I'm sure Chad watched the Olympics, but I really, my, I don't think he ever watched ice skating with us in the Winter Olympics. And I don't know if he was around to watch the gymnastics. I think, I think I do remember track and field being like the prime time event that we would watch together, all of us. Ooh, did you ever watch speed skating? Side note. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite and still is one of my favorite winter. Powerful thighs. <sighs> Such powerful thighs. Um, when the Olympics, Summer Olympics were in Atlanta in 1996. Mm-hmm. For listeners who might not know, Caroline and I are sitting right now in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where we work and live. Was it a big deal for you? You know, your family lives right outside of Atlanta. Yeah, we got out of town. Oh, you did? Yeah, my parents were not having it. Yeah. Oh. We, my, they did take me to the Centennial Olympic Park in downtown Atlanta. And I remember that being pretty cool. It was hot. It was so hot, and I remember going, and you could buy all sorts of Olympic swag, and they had, like, this massive display of pins, like, pins to stick on your clothes, and uh, I remember being so excited to get the soccer pin because little Caro loved to play soccer but was too afraid to join a team. So even though I loved playing and I had a great time doing it and I was not terrible for someone who had no practice or training, uh, I, I never joined a team. And so buying that little pin was like my little joiner moment. I love that story so much. Do you think you still have that pin? Oh, I'm sure I do. Because uh, listen up, there's a denim vest hanging in my childhood closet covered in pins. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um. If my mom hasn't thrown it out, every once in a while, she gets real like up in arms about how much stuff is left at the house. Um. But also, no. So, uh, you know, we, we visited Centennial Park. I bought the pins. I felt bad about not playing on a soccer team. And then my parents swept us out of town to go to our lake house in Michigan, where I was sitting on the couch the morning they were reporting on the Olympic Park bombing. So I remember running out to my mother and being like, there's a bomb, you know, in Atlanta. And my mother being like, mommy's talking. Just wait a second. And I'm like, really? Nothing? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that, that was kind of embarrassing. That and the fact that our Olympic 
mascot was named. It was nicknamed Izzy, which stood for "What is it?" Because but like people all didn't one know. word, yeah, people didn't what really. What is it? People did not know what it is. Um, it was so, toothpaste with eyeballs, basically. It really did look like that. It was. Uh, it was pretty sad. We were <laughs> the laughing stock <laughs> of the mascot world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a tough crowd right there. Uh, meanwhile, not not terribly far away from you, I was. A young kid who had Olympic fever. Uh, long story short, my parents were friends with the family of a Canadian rhythmic gymnast. Oh. So I got to go to the Olympic Village, Ooh. which was very cool. Um, I also collected as many pins as I could. I was also very proud of a souvenir shirt that I bought in Athens, which is outside of Atlanta, where the University of Georgia is, where a lot of events took place. Um, and because of the Athens Greece link, my souvenir shirt was of all these like Greek Olympiad, um, athletes. And I didn't really notice until I think like my brother pointed it out that there were totally like penises. On the shirt, sweet little conger. She didn't know. I know. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know to look there. Um, <laughs> but ninety six was the year of the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, and I was watching on television because mm-hmm. we weren't. It was such a hot ticket. Mm-hmm. We couldn't go to gymnastics. But I was watching it not far away from where it was happening, and I remember very vividly sitting in my parents' living room watching. Carrie Strug twist her ankle during the vault yep. and then hobble back and land that second vault. And then her coach comes up and scoops her up. Oh, it's such like, an Ooh. iconic moment when he carries her. Yeah. And then on SNL, Chris Kattan, <laughs> you know, started like the whole sketch where he was uh <laughs> Carrie Strug's little brother, like Kippy or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had huge... Uh, gymnastics fever that year. Well, yeah, because I can't walk in a straight line. How can they do all that they do on a balance beam? I mean, it truly was magnificent. But I have a feeling that no no shade on Carrie Strug and the other gals, who, by the way, were, were rocking some amazing windsuits and bangs back then. Uh, I have a feeling that their performances might pale in comparison to the Rio games, where we have none other than three-time world champion Simone Biles, who is representing the U.S. and might make gymnastics history. Oh, uh, she's incredible. I never thought I would say these words out loud in, in a sentence, but I could seriously watch videos of her flipping around all day long. She, yeah. she she. I was just telling Kristen before we came in to record that I feel that Simone Biles is able to defy physics because if you watch her videos of her routines, it literally will look like there's not enough time and space for her to continue flipping so that her head is above her feet, (laughs) you know, allowing her to land on her feet and not her head. Uh, And she does it. She pulls it off. And I don't know how. Yeah, I mean, and she is so talented. Uh, She's basically the Serena Williams of gymnastics. Only f- very compact. Yes, much shorter, <laughs> but probably as strong. I mean, that girl is nothing but muscle. Um, and we're going to talk more about Biles later in the episode. But I also want to mention uh, that I'm going to be keeping an eye out for Deepa Karmacher, who is the very first female 
gymnast from India ever to qualify for the Olympics. And she stands a good chance to win a medal at Rio because apparently her vault is incredible. She can do this type of vault. I forget what kind it is called, but this vault that is deadly because Ooh. if you overshoot it, you can break your neck very easily oh. and die. Oh. Um, but she can do it. Deepa has got it nailed. So they're thinking that she might, uh, she's definitely a metal contender. You said, you said that. deadly vault and I immediately am like spy thriller and I'm like picturing her as a spy and like all she does is like tumble and vault around and, and, and kill enemies. But I, I would watch that Netflix show. Yeah. Uh, hello. Yes. And I, you, you totally brought my mood down though when you said that it, it's deadly because she could, she could hurt herself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, only a, a couple other gymnasts have performed the style of vault just because it's so uh, it's it takes such a intense level of skill. OK, I'll be watching Deepa, but maybe through my fingers over my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and a quick disclaimer for gymnastics fans out there. We are just going to focus on Olympic gymnastics, because if we tried to cover the entirety of the sport, which thrives on the college level as well. NCAA gymnastics is huge. Um, we would be here all day. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I w- was in college, well, when you and I were in college, we were in college together, uh, the gym dogs were a huge thing. UGA's women's gymnastics team. Yeah. Gym dogs were so popular. It's dogs with a spelled D-A-W-G because we are in the South. Dog. Yes. Gym dogs. So we can't be here forever talking about the entirety of the sport, nor can we be here forever talking about the gym dogs and how often my roommate went to see them um, at the Coliseum in Athens, uh, Georgia, not Greece. But we should point out that there's actually, out of all of the different types of gymnastics, there's only three at the Olympics, artistic, rhythmic, and trampoline. And rhythmic is the one with the ribbons, right? Yes, the ribbons, the pins, the ball. And the seeming lack of spines because yeah. they can just twist all which way. It's it's the closest you will get at the Olympics to a Cirque du Soleil performance. Oh. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, we're, we aren't going to talk about rhythmic. We're just going to focus on artistic um, trampoline gymnastics. That sounds like a lot of fun, but we're not talking about <laughs> that today. Um, and... We are obviously going to talk about people like Simone Biles and Nadia Comaneci and Mary Lou Retton, who have really, um, you know, made the sport what it is. But we also want to talk about how women's gymnastics is especially vulnerable to sexist sports media coverage. Oh, yeah. Big no time. No surprise. No surprise there at all. But first, we're going to somersault <laughs> right in to a little bit of history, courtesy of uh, Gymternet, which I discovered there's a whole internet devoted to the gymnastics, and it is referred to as the Gymternet, and I love that. But there's also a site, Gymter.net, i.e. Gymternet, mm. which is just terrific. It's just this treasure trove of gymnastics information, more gymnastics information that one could possibly ever even want unless you are so into the sport. Um, so we referenced that a lot. And also there was a great piece over at Fusion focused specifically on gymnasts of color in the Olympics. So let's get in our podcast time machine and go oh, back to, it. let's go back to 1928. Wait, we're not going back to ancient Greece? No. Oh. No, we're skipping ancient Greece, hopping into 1928. American women have been able to vote for 
eight years. Terrific. Wonderful. And the Olympics are in Amsterdam. And this is the first time that women gymnasts are invited to participate. But not American lady gymnasts. Right. American women did not go. There weren't that many women gymnasts in the 28 Olympics. And in 1932, those L.A. games did not invite the lady gymnasts back, largely due to um, the International Gymnastics Federation's determination that it would be economically like foolish to fly all these European girls over to L.A. to compete in a country where the sport was not popular. Yeah, well, I mean, you also have to keep in mind the context of the time, right? 1932, you've got the Great Depression. And so for a lot of people, it's just not economically feasible to be able to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you have a lot of gymnastics programs being dropped from U.S. schools because of financial issues. So basically, people are kind of, in general, hunkering down and trying to weed out things that aren't uh, super vital to their day-in and day-out lives. Yeah, so there just wasn't a ton of interest. Um, but then in 1936, Team USA goes to the Olympics for the first time. But it, it's it's sort of a, um, a a dark time to premiere at the Olympics because these were the Berlin Games. Mm. Um, and I say it was a dark time, not just because the team didn't medal, um, but because uh, it was essentially like the Nazi games. Yeah, so that really emotional and beautiful uh, torch relay that we have every year for the Olympics. You know, in Atlanta, it was so emotional because you had Muhammad Ali lighting the torch at the very end. It was just, I just, I remember that so clearly, um, watching him do that. Uh, yeah, Hitler started that i had no idea i didn't know that either like has has nbc who basically owns the olympics as nbc just tried to like cover that up or the ioc yeah um yeah so the torch relay start that year in 1936 started in greece and ended in Berlin. And I realized that this has nothing to do with gymnastics specifically, but we can't. It's an important Olympic side. Yeah, we can't not share this. Um, The torch relay started in Greece, ends in Berlin, and the final runner that year passed through rows of swastika flags. Mm -hmm. And it was Nazi propaganda. Yeah, because they were basically trying to associate themselves with these superior athletes and intellects of ancient Greece. Yeah. So um, never going to look at the torch relay quite the same again because it started as uh, Nazi propaganda. They even had Lenny Reifenstahl uh, film this relay and release it in her documentary about the Olympics called Olympia. So a little bit of uh, Nazi history for all you Sminty listeners. And honestly, since... 1936 was the Nazi Olympics. No big loss that Team USA did not medal. It's fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. Um, we should also note that during that time, only team medals were granted. It wasn't until 1952 in Helsinki that individual medals were given and when gymnasts could compete as individuals like a Simone Biles. Ah, well, speaking of individuals, from 1956 to 64, you have Soviet Union gymnast Larissa Ledinina. I think I think that's right. Ledinina. Yeah. Uh, winning 18 
medals. And this makes her the most decorated Olympian ever until freak of nature Michael Phelps comes along. Yeah. American swimmer. And Phelps is back in Rio. Yeah, I know. But okay, another side note. Like, have you seen those diagrams of him and his like wingspan and like all of these ratios where they show that he is like a physical freak of nature and that is how he is able to just dominate swimming? Anyway, it should be interesting to watch this year. Okay, moving on to 1976 in Montreal. This is when we have Romania's Nadia Comaneci becoming the first gymnast to score a perfect 10, and she does it on the uneven bars. And this was a huge moment for the sport. Mm -hmm. This was really its worldwide coming out party because people started paying way more attention because, oh, whoa, you have... This gymnast scoring a perfect 10? How How is that possible? We must start watching this thing. <laughs> and then uh, fast forward to 1984 when Mary Lou Retton slays the Olympics. She becomes the first American woman to win the all-around gold. So the U.S. is like, oh, we are all about the Olympics now. This is when you start to see little girls around the country just flooding yeah. gymnastics classes. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, too, that in 84, the Soviet bloc was boycotting the games, which meant you didn't have those, like, gymnastics-dominating countries that were typically, it was what? So it's the Soviet Union, you've got Romania in there. I want to also say... It's basically, like, Eastern Europe and uh, today Russia um, yeah. that really dominated for most of... Um, Olympic history. Yeah. Until the 80s when you have Mary Lee Retton and her haircut. That's right. God, that haircut. Is it kind of like a bowl cut? Would that be the best description? Yeah. So classic. <laughs> um, but she landed three perfect tens. She got one for her floor exercise um, and two for vaults. But speaking of perfect tens, big moment in 2006 when the perfect 10 scoring system was swapped out with open-ended scoring to reward more difficult routines. That So that NPR sports reporter that I was talking about earlier, his opinion, and I'll be interested to hear from, from gymnasts and gymnastics fans out there because I don't know, um, but he was arguing that switching to this new system made it less exciting or i mean he still loves gymnastics and loves to watch it but he said that there was something thrilling about watching gymnasts try to strive for the perfect 10 um in my head i was like well but wouldn't you want a score that reflects the difficulty and all of this stuff i don't know so someone needs to write in and tell me what they think and what i and what i should think honestly well i mean it just makes sense like of thinking about any kind of grading system oh, when you can oh, get totally. a 100 like just that feeling of you cannot do any better yes. but with this open scoring system mm -hmm. it's always possible to i mean with some someone like Simone Biles coming along you know she would have nothing but perfect tens and so in that way it would get, get kind of boring i would think oh. so i i would argue the opposite um when we look though at the gendering of the sport because of how much focus is on women's gymnastics. It's one of those rare sports where people care, seem to care a lot more about uh, the women's sport than the men's sport, even though, hello, pommel horse, you could watch that all day. Um, it's so feminine coded, which I think is part of why it is so popular because it's, it's so athletic and it takes so much strength, but it's softened by 
all of the glitter and the fancy leotards and the hair, which are really fun, but and, some argue that they're distracting. And really all the scrunchies. Ooh, good scrunchie style. And gymnastics isn't the only feminine-coded sport like this. In the Winter Olympics, of course, you have figure skating, which I feel like is, is sort of the the gendered equivalent. Diving is also arguably feminine because really? it's all about grace. Oh, mm-hmm. And tiny puddles. Yes. Don't make any ripples. I love watching diving. I know. Well, it's, it scares me because... Greg Luganus? No, just necks. I'm worried about necks snapping. Yeah. Did it, well, oh, and he hit his head. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. yeah. No, I'm, yeah. Well, it, just people hurting themselves in general. It makes me very nervous. <laughs> but what's interesting about that whole feminine coded thing, you know, moving on from, from tiny puddles and broken necks, uh, is the fact that that is most of what's broadcast when it comes to women, right? Like the, the sports that are more female or feminine coded are more likely to be broadcast. Right. But I think that's also like the chicken egg thing. I don't think that we like love gymnastics because it's what we see the most, but rather broadcasters show mostly these more like mm-hmm. feminine coded sports. So there was a UNC study of the Beijing Summer Games, which analyzed, um, you know, how much like what kinds of sports were broadcast when and they found that 60 percent of women's primetime coverage was exclusively gymnastics, swimming and diving. And then if you add in beach volleyball and any sport where women compete in leotards or swimsuits, that goes up to 97 percent. So, I mean, there there is I think there is a very gendered aspect to the kinds of Olympic female Olympic sports that are the most considered the most mainstream. Ah. But the thing is, gymnastics culture is undeniably fun and girly. Yeah, I mean, let's just look at the history of the haircuts. I mean, what what were we looking at that had the whole history of gymnastics fashion? That's the gym turnet. The gym turnet. Oh my god, it's it's a pretty detailed breakdown of the evolution of gymnastics fashion and it's fascinating because you go from like the little Mary Lou Retton bowl cuts you've got the feathered bangs all the way up to the slick slicked back ponytails with the scrunchies I, I love it it is unapologetically girly so um one thing I didn't know about gymnastics hair because my, you know, personal history with gymnastics only stretches back to really like 1996. Um, Erica Peterson over on, uh, the gym turnet starts off the timeline with the sixties bouffant. I mean, which I just love imagining gymnasts today with a bouffant. Um, like, wouldn't that mess you up? What if it gets caught on something? I know. I know. It makes no sense. But then uh, she mentions how 1972 was pivotal. With pigtails. Yeah, which is like fun to look at, but it's also kind of weird and creepy on the other side because all of a sudden in 1972 with girls starting to wear pigtails, you do see a shift from focusing on like adult lady people gymnasts to the focus on very small, young looking girls being the gymnasts on TV. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just them looking young. I mean, the sport itself, like, shifts down 
in age. And the way Peterson describes it was as it was uh, out with the old debutante updos and in with the charming youths. Youths. Yes. Uh, and, and four years later, in 1976, Nadia Comaneci introduced the pony. You got that, that famous ponytail. Well, and they all had yarn tying their hair up. Yeah, little that yarn was, ribbons. That was like a thing for a while. And I vaguely do remember going to school with girls who used that fat yarn to tie their hair up. I had some of that fat yarn. Not I, to brag. I did not have fat yarn. But it, it is interesting to see the, the little like yarn dangling out of their hair. <laughs> I, I love how the, the yarn is so fascinating. It is. It is. It's weird. I well, mean, it's just a different type of I mean, like, how is it different than a ribbon? Because it's yarn. And that's so like, that's so like after school craft to me. You know what I mean? Well, listen, if you're living in like a Soviet bloc country, you might not have the finest ribbons at your disposal. Are, really? Like, is it that hard to get ribbon? I don't know. Someone tell me. I, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think life was that easy in the Soviet Union. Is it really so hard to get ribbon? I mean, I watch the Americans on FX. It seems like they, Carrie Russell always has perfect hair. <laughs> she does. Um, but really with Komenechi's 1976 ponytail, ponies have kind of been the name of the game, uh, except with some 80s and 90s highlights of, of course, Mary Lou Retton's bowl cut. And then you have the Carrie Strug. It's not a crew cut necessarily. It's like a feathered pixie somehow. Yeah. Like in the front, it's all like poof. Well, sort of like a reverse mullet. Because it's short on the bottom, but full on the top. Business in the back, party, party in, the in the front. front. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then you do have the moment in gymnastics history, which I never would have known if it weren't for the gymternet. Uh, the little blip in hair history where they use their ponytails. They didn't pull them all the way through. So it was like the dangly ponytail bun. And apparently that was popular just a couple years ago, like in the last Olympics a couple years ago. But I remember I remember girls doing that when I was in middle school. Oh, so it seems like my middle school is finally trickling down to the international gymnastics stage. You're pretty ahead of the game there. What can I say? You know, Marietta, Georgia, just way ahead of the curve. Definitely setting trends. Um, I mean, Marietta was probably knee deep in scrunchies when you were growing up. (laughs) That is for sure. Um, and the scrunchie game was so strong in the nineties. Now, you know, an Olympic gymnast would not probably touch a scrunchie with a 10 foot pole. Um, but you have <laughs> also the phase of visible hair clips everywhere. Mm-hmm. The glitter, glitter became a thing. That's still kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the glitter has been phased out a little bit in favor of a sleek bun, and more of a statement lip. A bright red statement lip, for sure. I love it. Looks great. I mean, why shouldn't you match your lip color to your leotard? I say that every day. That's one of my my mottos. It is weird that you're wearing plaid lipstick right now. And a plaid leotard. Yeah. My my chambray (laughs) uh, lipstick is just making me look dead, so... Maybe I should rethink this trend. If I could wear a chambray leotard, you know, I'd do it. <laughs> we're pretty much anything made out of chambray. <laughs> and I'll prove it. <laughs> um, but of course, uh, there have been also many articles devoted to two leotards. 
because there's been such terrific leotard fashion in gymnastics. Um, the ones with the little collars on them from the 70s and I 80s. I know, a little Peter Pan collar? Yeah. Hello. Totally cool. That with your little pigtails and yarn, fat yarn. <laughs> it's it's a great look. Um, But leotard technology is a real thing. That's right. She said leotard technology. Mm-hmm. Um, they evolved from essentially polyester swimsuits to these high-tech razzle-dazzle get-ups that cost hundreds of dollars. Um, and by the 60s and 70s, leotards have become more form-fitting for mobility and safety. So probably the same reason the bouffant went out. <laughs> like it keeps getting caught on the balance beam. Same yeah. with your like gymnastics dress <laughs> that you're wearing. They could finally take off their their formal evening gloves, yeah. um, at least for the uh, the uneven bars. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I didn't realize this that leotards, even starting in the sixties and seventies, are typically high cut to make your legs appear longer. Uh, is that important in gymnastics? Absolutely, because it's all about appearance and lines and oh. grace. And so, by and they making, are short. Yeah, they're very short. And so, by making and and their legs are very muscular, so probably having that higher cut um, leotard makes their legs appear, appear both longer and leaner. Oh. I'm also tapping into my my ballerina past. Oh, I was just thinking of like every women's magazine every spring. It's like, remember, ladies, wear a high-cut bathing suit. It's like, well, that's not going to distract from my saddlebags. Anyway, um, moving on to people who do have leg muscles. Um, nowadays, Team USA uses leotards that are made out of this shiny, high-tech, as Kristen says, razzle-dazzle material called Mystique. I don't believe that's a reference to the X-Men character, um, but it's super shiny and it compresses and supports. And if you are one of those people getting a mystique leotard, uh, that's all sorts of shiny. If you are buying one that has thousands upon thousands of Swarovski crystals on it, it can take more than a year and a half or up to a year and a half to make. And costs $500. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Who's paying for that? Are the families having to pay for that? I think um, when you're at that level, it would be USA Gymnastics. Oh, okay. It's probably paying for it. Wonderful. I would hope. Um, but also in terms of the leotards being cut and made in certain ways to emphasize different parts of the body, modern leotards are super shiny to show off musculature. Right. So many things. I to have show no off how, how fit these ladies are, these athletes. God. And, oh, just... That level of muscle is is so is just unbelievable to me, especially when I remember like, oh, wait, she's 16. Wow. Um, and then finally, you have the makeup. There's always been I, I feel like women's gymnastics might be the only Olympic sport where makeup is required. Is synchronized swimming not an, an Olympic sport? It is. It is. They wear makeup. Oh, they do. That's a requirement. OK, well, it's so then I stand corrected. Perhaps it's one of. Two, then. I guess you got to get a lot of uh, good waterproof mascara for that one. Yeah. Lot, lots and lots of waterproof mascara. Um, Olympic gymnast Alicia Sacramone told Fashionista that, quote, you just kind of have to match your eyeshadow to your leotard because that's a big deal. 
you got a match. <laughs> Big deal. But no nail polish. They're not allowed to wear nail polish. It's like, okay, you can put glitter <laughs> in your hair. You can wear a razzle-dazzle leotard. You can wear eyeshadow and a statement lip, but you can't wear nail polish? That is weird. I wonder what that's about. I don't know. Um, I don't understand. I'm sure a, a gymnastics expert in the audience can tell us. Maybe the gymnastics organizers need to get together with the track and field organizers and they, the track and field people can help the gymnastics people see the light. Because I'm telling you, those track and field ladies have some of the best nail art I've ever seen. True. Yeah. Although Flojo nails on <laughs> on a gymnastics uh, vault would <laughs> might be a bad situation about yeah, to happen. Yeah, you just got like a crumpled bit of bouffant and evening wear and fake nails on the floor, <laughs> just everywhere. Um, but the thing is, like, as fun as all of these like superficial features of gymnastics and gymnastics culture are to watch and to talk about, you do kind of wonder, like, why? Why do they need to match their eyeshadow to their leotard? Why would they, why would an athlete of this caliber be judged not only on that, but also, you know, even them just like having to smile? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you see cheerleaders at all levels, including competitive cheerleaders um, on teams who are expected to do the same thing, wear makeup, straighten their hair, you know, look perfect and smile, even though they are also like nothing but muscle as they do tumbles and all sorts of whatever cheerleaders do. But I think the difference is that cheerleaders are there to entertain and cheer people up. So, of course, they would be expected to smile. Well, sure. I guess I'm thinking of like the competitive cheerleading tournaments and stuff. Yeah. That it's the same thing that you could argue of like, okay, I get why like the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders need to have perfect hair and makeup and all of that stuff. But like, why do girls competing on some state level need to wear all of that glitter makeup? I don't know. I don't know why they're expected to other than it is such a feminine coded sport and athletic event and maybe there's just different expectations yeah i mean and i'm gonna say like i i don't uh get why the dallas cowboys cheerleaders have to have perfect hair and makeup you know i'd much prefer them in just like overalls and a fresh face just kind of chilling you know (laughs) wearing levi's and a cowboy hat yeah why not (laughs) riding a literal cow sure there we go. <laughs> Cow leading. It's the new, it's the new sport for women. Um, and this issue of kind of stop telling gymnasts to smile was raised in a New Republic piece that cited a gymnastics host who really hates how these competitors are expected to keep on smiling, even if they're injured, saying, you know, a man that's competing or a teenage boy who's competing with an injury is a hero. He's being a man and he's stepping up. But a female gymnast, you know, she can't ever just kind of scowl and walk off. Well, that's why it was so great when Serena Williams not too long ago, they were like, why aren't you smiling? She's like, really? I'm not allowed to be tired or have a bad day or whatever. It's Yeah, it's the same thing. And it's the same thing about telling any woman to smile. Um, But, I mean, you also have to keep in mind that there is that kind of seedy underbelly of gymnastics in terms of uh, allegations of abuse and eating disorders and other sorts of 
you know, body and health dysfunction, basically. And so <laughs> you you imagine if like stuff like that is potentially going on and you're still telling people to smile. It's like, I don't know, maybe we have bigger fish to fry. Yeah. I mean, um, I can verify that at least among rhythmic gymnastics, eating disorders that are promoted by coaches yeah. are a huge problem. Um, and then there's a the whole infantilization aspect where, I mean, if you just look at the physiques of many top tier gymnasts, they have, you know, small breasts and very petite frames. And there's this idea that essentially they are trained to kind of delay puberty as mu- as long as possible because um, it's apparently harder to uh, tumble and vault when you have C cups. Um, but Elspeth Reeve, who wrote that New Republic piece, was talking to NPR saying that uh, the sport was very much focused on these little girls dancing on a playground, like the way that the NBC commentators would, you know, talk about these gymnasts was very infantilizing, not to mention the fact that these athletes are pretty much exclusively referred to as girls and also princesses like princess rhetoric comes up a lot where a girl getting there and see, I'm doing it now where an athlete getting there is you know, this princess who is living a fairy tale life and she's wearing this bejeweled leotard and and look at her and all her loveliness. Yeah. And I mean, we read from a lot of like sportscaster type people and people in the sports world about how when you're looking for stuff to talk about as these athletes are on camera, people want to hear a story. They're watching it on television at home. They want to hear a story. And it's almost like fairy tale porn they're like oh my god i want to hear more about how this young girl overcame so much to be here uh you know to show up with her fat yarn in her hair and the same is true when you're calling when you're pitting athletes against each other in the case of calling some of them divas or or princesses yeah i mean you're you're basically either a diva or a princess a mm-hmm. lot of times. Um, and you'll you'll notice that usually the divas are Russian who exhibit, quote, petulance to criticism. Um, you'll hear the word temperamental applied to, quote, unquote, difficult gymnasts a lot of times. Um, in 2012 in London, you had Russia's Aliyah Musafina, who was constantly called a diva, not only by sportscasters, but also, you know, by uh, people watching. And I think it's because she had a bad performance. And when her coach came up to her to try to talk to her, she brushed him off. And they were like, oh, what a diva. How dare, how dare this young woman not talk to that man? Um, but yeah, it's the kind of thing. Who was saying that... Uh, in Russia, it's like, guys, we don't operate the same. Like, we're going to show our emotion. If we're happy, we're happy. If we're upset, we're upset. And you're going to know which yeah. one it is. Yeah. I mean, there's no denying kind of the geopolitics of the American princesses versus the Russian divas. Yeah. Because that, you know, Russian and Eastern European v. U.S. rivalry is still very much going strong. Um, because you got to remember that women's gymnastics was dominated throughout the Cold War era by those Soviet bloc countries like Romania, Hungary, and Russia. 
1984, Mary Lou Retton's phenomenal performance only intensified the battle, so-called battle. Like these women are apparently like representing <laughs> not not only gymnastics but also uh, nuclear warfare <laughs> potentially. Oh my god, I'm just picturing like the costume potential. Like everybody comes out dressed as uh like missiles and things. Weren't there weren't there like fashion, there were like pageants, beauty pageants during the Cold War where women would dress and they would like do their hair up like an atomic blast? Yes. That's probably even more difficult than wearing a bouffant, to be honest. Um, but I mean, just like sexism, bald face sexism is also pretty common. Uh, NBC commentator Al Troutwig in 2008 was commenting on a gymnast's uh, injury that she sustained leading up to the Olympics. And instead of just, you know, talking about the injury or saying like, man, that's unfortunate, you know, get better uh troutwig says it's like having a tear in your wedding dress right before you walk down the aisle which to me honestly sounds like a terrible line from uh alanis morissette's ironic you know something that's not ironic yeah and i gotta say that troutwig is cited in everything that we read about sexist uh coverage of women's gymnastics he just loves Loves tossing out those kinds of one one liners. Yeah, especially about the diva stuff. Like he seems pretty big on dismissing female athletes as divas. But the good news amid all of the sex with sports coverage is the fact that the gym internet exists. And we're gonna talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. So the Gymternet, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, is the network of online hardcore gymnastics fans who are basically giving the sport 
the legitimate coverage that they wish it would receive year round, not just when, you know, every four years when the Summer Olympics comes around. Yeah. And the the community of people that constitutes the Gymternet has become a go to source for a lot of people. They are the ones getting the stories and interviews with men and women in the gymnastics scene that mainstream sports news just isn't. Maybe because they don't have time or space to dedicate to it, but maybe also because not enough eyeballs are getting on the gymnastics content. Well, and I have a feeling, too, that there's some of that sexist marginalization happening where it's like, oh, you know, we, we like to see it every four years, those, those cute divas and princesses coming mm-hmm. out and flipping around. Um, but the gymternet, Stars have really become, you know, to put it in internet terms, they've become the influencers of the sport. And I love that it started with Tumblr. <laughs> God, it's so millennial. Um, it started around 2008 on Tumblr in order to, as uh, Elspeth Reeve told NPR, that it started in order to provide the real necessary pushback that's not about the sparkles and the girlishness. It's about the crazy work workouts, the incredible athletics, the injuries, and coming back from injuries. And there's even a podcast. Yeah, you've got Jim Castic, which is hosted by a law librarian named Jessica O'Byrne. And uh, what's pretty notable is that Michaela Maroney, she of the unimpressed face uh, after the Olympics, announced her retirement on that podcast. She did not go talk to, you know, ESPN or USA Today. She went on a podcast. Yeah. I mean, and I want to say that Simone Biles has been on Jim Castic. Pretty much all of the big names in the sport have been on Jim Castic and Jessica O'Byrne. I hope that you're listening right now. And I also hope that I'm not mispronouncing your last name because this could be some terrific podcast synchronicity. Yeah. Um, but there's also, of course, the Gymternet blog, which was started by Lauren Hopkins, um, who was just a gymnastics fan who was working in marketing at a New York law firm and was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to start this thing. And now she is going to be a gymnastics researcher for NBC. In Rio. Yeah. And seriously, if you have any interest in gymnastics, you got to check out the Gymternet. But isn't that like not to project my like young Caroline dreams onto anyone else. But isn't that the freaking dream to like be hosting a passion project blog that like you're so obsessed with that you can't stop doing. You can't stop researching and writing for. And then freaking NBC is like, hey, can you come like actually work for us? To do all of the stuff that you're doing for yourself? Yeah. I mean, like, she's a go-to source now. She and uh, O'Byrne are go-to sources for, you know, press coverage of gymnastics. Good. Good for them. That's amazing. They know their stuff. They do know their stuff. And both are, you know, just so, so well-produced. I mean, it's not, um, this isn't amateur level. I mean, it's technically amateur, but it's professionally, you know, it's professional level terrific. And both of them are just so well done it makes sense that they're getting national attention for what started out as passion projects it is the millennial dream come true it all starts with tumblr well speaking of tumblr i feel Mm. like that's that's the transition here um one thing that we wanted to address is the racial coding of gymnastics and i say speaking of tumblr because of course tumblr is you know, all about social justice and diversity and maintaining awareness of of these kinds of things. And the question is whether 
this Jim Turnett era sport now is becoming less racially coded as a white sport. Yeah, I mean, you do have the fact that as of 2007, only about 7% of the American gymnastics population is black. And that is not that doesn't equate to the percentage of African-Americans in the overall population. Yeah. So basically, they're underrepresented. Um, Devorah Myers, who wrote a book about uh, the Perfect Ten system, um, also was writing about this issue specifically at Fusion. And she attributes that 7% to the fact that gymnastics is often very suburban, very expensive, and very time-consuming. I mean, I know for me growing up, if I'd wanted to join a gymnastics gym, um, which plenty of them in town, but it would have been prohibitively expensive for me to do it. And it's a bummer because back in the day, public schools used to offer affordable gymnastics, YMCAs. You know, there were ways that anyone, especially like living in more urban areas, could possibly get involved with it, but not anymore. Definitely not anymore. Yeah, to the point where at just 16 years old, gymnast Gabby Douglas had to move all the way to Iowa without her family to live with a host family in order to work with her coach. Yeah, um, that profile, Time Magazine profile of Gabby Douglas right after the London Olympics when she, of course, won the gold was, I mean, just stunning, like Thinking about her sheer determination, and I know determination and confidence and bravery, those are like three adjectives that always get thrown out whenever we're talking about Olympic athletes. But just the length, literally, the length that she and many others, I'm sure, but that she went to to pursue this specific coach, whose name is escaping me, that she saw on TV during the Olympics. And she was like, that's the coach. And that coach lives in Iowa. I've got to move to Iowa. You know, and and trying to figure that out and also paired with such an intensive training schedule. There was one um, one instance, apparently, when she kind of revolted and was like, I'm not going to practice because it's Christmas. (laughs) But I mean, that's the level of dedication that it takes. Yeah. In order to make it this far. Yeah. And and something that's limiting to a lot of people, not just on the basis of ethnicity, but something that's limiting to a lot of people is the degree of physical expectation uh, placed on gymnasts, much like ballet. You know, you are expected to be lithe and thin. You're expected to have those high leg lines helped out by your shiny leotard. Um, but also kind of the look in general, that is where the ethnic component comes in because the look, especially because so many of those early successful gymnasts were coming out of Eastern Europe, the look has traditionally been white and delicate. And it's so much like ballet and, you know, which is part of why Misty Copeland's success has been so um, outstanding um, since she doesn't have that quote-unquote perfect ballet body type, which is very similar um, to the quote-unquote perfect gymnast body type. Um, but it's all, I mean, it has to do with how the sport came out of Russia, which is uh, also where, you know, a lot of early ballet was happening. And so, I mean, the history of it, the earliest history was very white. But the yeah. problem is now you have some people like, uh, I forget what year it was, but there were, there was, 
a member, there was an Italian gymnast and coach who, yeah, who mm. I think talking about Simone Biles saying, um, that essentially she was getting like affirmative action, like points. Yeah. And, and the coach just, cause the, the actual athlete said something like, should I paint my skin black in order to win? Oh, and yeah. then the coach comes out and you're like, okay, all right, this person clearly is an idiot. Here comes the coach. Let's see what the coach has to say. This person will make it better. Oh my God. The coach made it a thousand times worse with his commentary. Um, and a lot of it tied into ideas about that have persisted over centuries, mind you, of, athleticism and power, physical power among black people in general versus like elegance and daintiness and purity of of white people. And that's definitely a really icky, awful, ugly stereotype that you see persisting in sports, particularly when you bring people from so many countries together. And so it's reflected a lot of times in sports commentary which is so you're not only hearing diva and princess being tossed around, you're hearing powerful being used for someone like a Simone Biles, which not that she isn't. Uh, and whereas things like elegant are typically reserved for white athletes. Yeah, I am so excited to watch the women's gymnastics in Rio this year just to listen for any kind of gender and like ethnic coded language to mm-hmm. see just how prominent it is and see if maybe we've moved past it some. Um, and, and the thing about that, the undertone, the subtext, the subtweet of the powerful description are allegations that Simone Biles and these like very like literally strong gymnasts are stripping gymnastics of its original artistry. Yeah. But you hear that usually from like, Russian and European competitors where it's like by artistry do you mean white people like white thin long white girls which I'm kind of a thin long white girl like thin long white girl. <laughs> no shade but it's like what do you really mean by that yeah Kristen's always lying down so you can never really describe her as tall you just have to say that she's <laughs> just long. long just long and also we got to talk about what happened at the London games when people complained across the internet that Gabby Douglas's hair was not neat enough. It's like, hold the phone. Are we really talking about a gymnast of colors hair situation? (laughs) She is winning the gold and you are complaining about her hair. Hello. Like racist past and present. Do you remember what the, what the problem was with it? They just said it wasn't neat enough. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't like it. That's that's a case of people not examining their own racial biases. Yeah, I mean, because black hair has never attracted any kind of like unwanted or racist. Oh wait, oh. wait, wait. Oh, it always does. it always does. Um, but um, I I I did notice that just kind of going back and looking at photos from past Olympics, Dominique Dawes, who was a member of the Mag- Magnificent Seven and the first African American gymnast to win a gold medal, um, she wore her hair short and natural at the 2000 games. And I'm so glad that Twitter did not exist then because I can only imagine the feedback she might have gotten. Yeah. And that's that's like the two sided thing about that. Right. Is like everybody's like, oh, man, if only Twitter had existed back then. And then Dominique Dawes could be the same level of heroin. You know, the way that we talk about uh, a Gabby Douglas or a Simone Biles. But on the other hand, it's like, 
Uh, but Twitter can be so awful. <laughs> yeah, so awful, too. Well, and that visibility factor absolutely, you know, contributes to the underrepresentation of gymnasts of color in the sport. Because, for instance, you know, in 84, Mary Lou Retton inspired a ton of white girls to start taking gymnastics. Um, but it's not until 2012 when you have Gabby Douglas's historic gold in London, establishing her as a role model. And now with a woman like Simone Biles, you know, I, I've seen her videos shared by all types of people on social media who are astounded at her abilities because she she does. She totally defies physics. Um, and so you, you have to wonder, like, I wonder what the uh, Simone Biles effect will be. Yeah. I mean, Mary Lou Retton has already called her the most talented gymnast she's seen in her life. Um, she's the first female gymnast to win three straight world championships. And if she wins three, I don't know if it's gold medals or just medals in general at Rio, she will be the most decorated American gymnast ever. And she already has a gymnastics move named after her, the Biles, which is a double layout, half out, if you know what that is. It's very <laughs> totally. impressive. Um, and she debuted it at the 2013 World Championships. And her backstory makes her success all the more incredible. Yeah, no kidding. At just two years old, she and her three siblings had to be removed from their home because their mother was struggling with addiction. And so uh, their grandfather, Ron, and his wife, Nellie, end up adopting the kids in 2003. And at age six, Simone starts taking classes. And she's basically like a little gymnastics prodigy. She progresses super fast. And in 2013, she has a terrible meet, but this proves to be an actually great turning point for her. Yeah. So after that, she circles up with a sports psychologist and USA national team coordinator, Martha Caroli, um, who is part of the gymnastics dream team coaching wise. <laughs> um, she's the wife of Bella Caroli, who was the previous team coordinator. Um, and. I don't know what that sports psychologist and Martha Crowley were able to inspire in her. But just three weeks later, she won the U.S. championship and two months later, the world title. And since then, she has not lost a meet. I don't know, like people, therapists, psychologists and professionals like a Martha Crowley. They can help you get out of your head. Like that was something that Gabby Douglas said that she struggled a lot with was just getting too much in her own head. And when you're thinking too much with your brain parts, you can't be as effective with all your body parts moving around. And so there's a lot of discussion about how important it is to have that confidence and faith in yourself that all of those sports commentators do dismiss as diva behavior. You've got to think that you're the best. You can't be walking around making BFFs all over the floor. We're not here to make friends. This is gymnastics. We're well, going to kick butt. And, and one similarity, though, between that Time Magazine profile of Gabby Douglas from a few years back and a New Yorker profile on Simone Biles is um, always circling around to the the athletes not thinking they're the best. And that was really a major focus of the Gabby Douglas piece, unlike Simone Biles. Um, I mean, time really seemed to want to like hammer home. Like she's so good, but she doesn't think she is. She's so insecure. She's so great, but she's so insecure, which I was like, why? That's like that one direction song. 
<laughs> which I also hate. Uh, you're beautiful because you don't know you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I and I wonder though if that's that is part of the gendered coding of it, um, and it's something we're going to talk about in our next episode on women's Olympic boxing, where I wonder how much female athletes at the top of their game, unless you're like a Ronda Rousey, where it kind of comes with the territory of MMA and UFC, whether we allow them to know that they're the best. Because the New Yorker profile ends with Simone Biles saying, people say I'm the best, but I still don't think that. I guess if I go to the Olympics and do well, maybe I'll believe it. And you're the best in the world already. Why why don't you believe it? And I just wonder if it's like a little bit of media cherry picking or if it's uh, like some coaching psychology where you keep them insecure in how good they really are or if... You know, all gymnasts have imposter syndrome. <laughs> I'd read that book. I want to read that study. <laughs> Not a perfect 10. Uh-huh. Imposter syndrome at the gymnastics gym. The gymnastics gymnasium. But I mean, do you think, do you think that's the case? What do you think is going on with that? I, I have no idea. I mean, she could be being modest. Or it could, I mean, it could be that like this skill literally comes so easy to her that it, she can't see through to realize just how incredible she is. I don't know. Oh, also, I forget how young they are too. Yeah. Um, and our society doesn't exactly, you know, like build teen girls up to believe they're the best and the strongest. No kidding. So if anyone has any insight on that, please let us know. And gymnastics fans, uh, Olympic gymnastics fans, hope that you enjoyed this look at this segment of the sport because it was really fun to dive in and um, revisit the Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. learn about those high-tech leotards. All the crystals. And my um, my fandom for Simone Biles and Gabby Douglas and the rest of the USA team is only reinforced with this podcast. So now, listeners, we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. 
Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. I have a letter here from Amy in response to our librarian set of episodes. She says, first, I want to say I love, love, love your podcast. I'm a fairly new listener who was pointed to your podcast by my digital pin pal a few months ago, and I'm hooked. I'm already an avid listener of How Stuff Works, and I can't believe I never branched out to the lady side of the stuff family till now. I've recently listened to your librarian episodes, and I'm left feeling like I missed my true calling to be a librarian. Talk about a dream job. In part two, I believe you mentioned bibliotherapy and that neither of you had heard about it. The amazing folks at the School of Life have actually been offering this for a few years now. For a mere 100 pounds, you receive a one-on-one bibliotherapy session in which you are given a stack of literature tailor-picked for you and your situation. That... But that sounds incredible, uh, Amy. Thank you. Uh, she goes on to say, for a more DIY approach, the creators of the School of Life Bibliotherapy Sessions also put together a book called A Novel Cure, an A to Z of Literary Remedies that reads as a dictionary with literary suggestions for everything that ails you. And the site is thenovelcure.com. The book's accompanying website offers free suggestions to chosen folks who write in and also have a list of ailments with accompanying cures to peruse online. I find it a fascinating resource when choosing books as gifts. Keep up the amazing work. And thanks for all of this backstory, Amy. I want that book right now. Um, I've got a letter here from Maureen, also about our librarian's two-parter. Maureen writes, I wanted to share my personal experience with a library school program aimed at diversifying the profession. I got my master's at the University of Arizona in 2006 as part of a special program within the library school called Knowledge River, aimed at getting Latinos and Native Americans into the profession. Besides financial aid, internship experience, and specialized classes that focus on service to marginalized populations, it was a cohort of people who all got to know each other very well as we went through the program. Ten years later, I'm still in touch with some of the people I met. I was in the third cohort, and Knowledge River will start its 15th class this August, still going strong. Graduates work all over the country in all kinds of libraries. In the mid-sized public library branch where I work, three out of the four librarians on staff are Knowledge River graduates, and two speak Spanish. Every so often, I think of that and go, wow! We have a high population of Spanish speakers and many Native American patrons as well, so it's the right thing for our community. Librarianship is still a very white profession. You just have to wander the exhibit hall at the ALA annual conference to see that. But with Carla Hayden getting confirmed as the Librarian of Congress, the first woman, the first African-American, and the first librarian with a background in public libraries in that position, I feel that programs like KR are going to become more important than ever. Oh, well, thank you so much for letting us know about Knowledge River Marine. Um, it sounds like a fantastic program. And yes, shout out to our newest librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden. 
And if you've got shout outs to send to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about gymnastics, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive, and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.